Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 45th edition of Data Bytes, getting things done with data and government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Now, as ever, Data Bytes aims to give you some concrete lessons that won't crumble, reinforcing and cementing your data knowledge. I know some speakers feel the eight-minute countdown is torture, like being on the rack, but I'm sure our brilliant speakers tonight aren't bricking it. In fact, I'm confident they'll do a fantastic job. Let's start with some housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live-streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents, should any of you still be on Twitter. And to put questions to our speakers, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb45, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand as well. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes, yes, just eight minutes, and then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 45th Databytes. You can watch the previous 44 on the IFG website. It's a brilliant archive containing more treasures than the home of your average British Museum employee. Particular gems include our recent justice specials, numbers 40 and 42, our report on justice data funded by the Nuffield Foundation, and based on those events, will be out next week. So what's happened since we last met back in July? Well, my IFG colleagues have been busy with Civil Service Chart Nerd Christmas, the release of the annual Civil Service Employment Stats, and a whole explainer on the various MPs announcing they'll stand down at the next election. Then there was the small cabinet reshuffle with Defence Secretary Ben Wallace standing down. It's been one of the more stable cabinet positions in recent times. Grant Shapps is only the fourth occupant in four and a half years of databytes, compared to seven education secretaries and eight ministers for the cabinet office. Though it is Shapps' fifth different cabinet job in just over a year, and the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero has a second Secretary of State in just seven months of existence. The Labour reshuffle was more extensive, giving 14 members of the Shadow Cabinet just over a month to prepare for party conference. I say party conference. It may actually be, as one of my colleagues put it, the launch of either a 1980s soft rock album or a critically acclaimed biography of a member of the Bloomsbury Group that's about to be nominated for the Bailey Gifford Prize. Birmingham became the latest council to go bust. There was plenty of gutter politics. The Prime Minister took flight, again, and the government tried to start preparing for its big international AI safety summit. UK civil society and various international voices are sceptical. No one is really sure what the summit is about, said one diplomat. Perhaps they should have gone to hear Secretary of State Michelle Donnellan at the COGX conference yesterday. 
though it seems very few people did. And of course, we've had some by-elections. Uxbridge stayed conservative, just. But the government lost big majorities in Selby and Ainsty to Labour, and Somerton and Froome to the Lib Dems. If we look at all by-elections since 1945, we can see those drops in government vote share are among the biggest. Uh, but if we, we can also see that this parliament has seen two of the biggest increases as well. So we've just had three by-elections. We have three more coming up. If that feels like a lot, this is the by-election run rate for Parliament since 1979, with the 83 to 87 Parliament currently out in front. This Parliament is getting there. But if we go back to 1945, we can see there used to be a lot more of them, more than 60 in the 59 to 64 Parliament alone. So there have been quite a lot of by-elections, but there have also been quite a lot that have changed hands. The 92 to 97 Parliament currently holds the post-79 records for changes, nine, and government defeats, eight. The next three by-elections could break or equal those records, respectively. The forthcoming Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election comes from a successful recall petition. There have been four recall petitions since they were introduced in 2015. Here's how many signatures they needed to prompt a by-election, and here's how many they got. The first failed to reach the target, but all three since have. The forthcoming Tamworth by-election comes after Chris Pincher decided against facing that process. And the third forthcoming by-election is, of course, Mid-Bedfordshire, where former Digital Secretary Nadine Dorries finally resigned at the end of August, some 81 days after saying she would do so in June. 81 days. That's one and a half times as long as the Rugby Union World Cup, currently underway in France, and Liz Truss's tenure as Prime Minister, twice as long as the recently announced delay in publication of Dory's book on Boris Johnson, two and a half times as long as this summer's Women's World Cup, four times as long as the online safety bill spent in Parliamentary Committee, eight times as long as her stint in the jungle, 12 and a half times as long as all of her audiobooks, and 55 and a half times as long as Michelle Donnellan's summer 2022 stint as Education Secretary. But none of that really matters, since the ice caps are melting and the planet is burning. Some good news, though. It turns out there might be a planet B, which AI will no, help, no doubt help us chart a course to, and where we'll apply all of our carefully learned lessons about how not to destroy the environment. No doubt Kemi Badenoch is already preparing a trade deal with K218B. But turning to tonight, our first speaker joining us virtually will be Kaveh Jahan Shahi from the ONS Data Science Campus on estimation of travel to work matrices. We'll be back in the building for our second speaker for her second data bites, Nick Granger of the North Sea Transition Authority and Offshore Energy Data Strategy Task Force on digitalizing offshore energy. Third up will be Penny Babb, from the Office of Statistics Regulation on their review of the Code of Practice for Statistics. And our final speaker will be Ian Gordon from Parliament Restoration and Renewal on his book on data and the built environment. The next Data Bytes will be after party conference season on Wednesday the 18th of October, then 8th of November and 6th of December. On the left is me contemplating the incredible array of speakers we have for the next few months. On the right is me contemplating our sponsorship situation. This is yet another unsupported uh, Databytes, and if we don't start getting sponsors soon, your Databytes calendar will be as desolate as a New Mexico nuclear test site. 
So if you'd like to discuss partnering with us, please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And as ever, if you might be interested in speaking, please get in touch with me. That's more, enough, more than enough for my introduction. Bang on time. Uh, we'll now go to our first speaker, and that's joining us virtually, Carve. Who will hopefully appear, or whose slides will appear any moment now. Do we have Carve? Excellent. I'm just wondering if you can see my slides and we can indeed. Yeah, perfect. Uh, you set the bars really high by actually begging on the eight minutes here, but I will try to follow the suit. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kaveh Jahan Shahi, and as introduced, I'm from the Data Science Campus. Um, and uh, the aim of the presentation here today is looking into our geospatial program, which involves fusing traditional surveys, admin and big data for mobility and population estimates as part of the census transformation. Uh, sorry, all oh, right, yeah, of course, sorry about this. Is that okay now? That's great. Yeah, we've got the full screen. Sure. Perfect. Um, so the vision um, of this program is developing a real-time, short-term, and long estimate of all journeys to work between all LSOA zones, which are around 2,000 uh, households within each zones and around 34,000 of those across the UK. Uh, at a granular a temporal level, a weekly, monthly, and annual frequency, and also uh, wider population estimates. So it would be segmented by different purposes uh, at detailed frequency as well, uh, so that uh, one can find out early by early uh, where people are and for which purposes, so that uh, for the uh, for the agile uh, program and planning. And they're developing an interactive platforms to share these insights across the government uh, for presenting the results, but also for a longer term and the short term estimates, enabling the scenario based analysis. Uh, so potential policymakers can they ask the what if questions. Um, this require a variety of the data sources, such as survey data, like the National Traverse Survey, the census, etc., admin data that we can get, such as birth and death data, spending data, card expenditure data, VOA, which is the evaluation office agency data on the housing, geospatial data, such as OpenStreetMap or census geography or OS data, and the mobility, uh, such as mobile phone data, the telecoms data. This requires to go into the data fusion and augmentation process, which would be various different techniques that can be used uh, from a stochastic model, equilibrium model, a spatial interaction, or the other uh, data linkage techniques. And finally, dissemination and visualization in real time so that the people can get access uh, to a cloud-based solution and then ask their relative questions or query the data as they need it. Uh, the first step of this program is looking into the travel to work estimates. Uh, currently, the census collects this information every 10 years, and it's at output area level two workplace zones. 
and it has the separate tables by age, gender, and mode of transport at MSOA level, which is bigger than LSOA. A proposed improvement is having an annual estimator, wider population estimate, but also further segmentation by type of job, by industrial classification or occupation type. Um, the goals, I mean, we put it in a different stages, the roadmap of getting there, and the goals of the first stage is generate an alternative estimation of travel to work matrices to the one uh, reported in the census 2021. The reason being the census collected over the pandemic when the travel to work cannot really be representative of a, a normal condition. Uh, we've been in the lockdown with some people behaving uh, based on sort of like being on the fair load or some people behaving in specific ways uh, and some people going to work still. So it was a combination of a different type of responses received and ONS decided that we cannot publish the 2021 census data for the travel to work. So we decided to create a model as a first estimate here to rectify this issue or at least complement it to some extent based on estimation rather than real data though and then developing a framework that we can then further uh, incrementally improve it over the course of the time to develop an estimate um, for the future time and also for assessing the mobile phone data that we are contracting and then we are going to receive so that we can have something to compare against it when the census is not really a normal status. So we decided to go and create a spatial aggregate model um, as a first stage, uh, which includes actually something like a gravity model for those who are interested or in, uh, have a knowledge of the physics. But it's as simple as like looking into the total population as a place that the trips started, looking into the number of jobs as where the, those trips are demanded to go to, and then reversely link to the distance, cost, and time between the origin and the destination zones. Then it goes to a sort of formulas, and then what we do is calibrating the cost functions, trying to understand what are the best um, variables that can provide the estimate close to the observed data. For that, of course, you'll need the different data sources. We use the census 2011 as a ground truth, based on which we built this model and calibrated against it, uh, use the base year population, base year jobs, but also travel to work matrices and travel distance, etc. cetera, uh, over that time. And then we use the mid-year estimate planning data of the national tripper model and the mid-year estimate models to estimate the growth of the employed residents, those who are residents and still in the employment, and also number of jobs from 2011 to 2021, to apply that in this developed model to make estimation for the 2021. We also use the national travel survey data from which we get information of a pre and post COVID behavior in terms of how many people keep working from home or furloughed, et cetera, and how many continue going to work because we had the estimate or the survey collected through the National Travel Survey over the period of the COVID. And this is actually a, a initial sort of output from this, and we created two matrices with the pre and post COVID uh, assumptions, which is published on the ONS website with the technical report and the blog to explain that. But it's not all that. We are looking for the future, and this is only the first experimental statistic release in June 2023. We aim to improve it and combine it with the mobile phone data to benefit from the strengths of each. Mobile phone data as a big data provide the big vision of 
how the format or like a patterns of the mobility is and how the growth would look like. However, it doesn't give you enough information about the underlying forces, which are the people who actually do the trip. Uh, and that's something that the models and other sorts of surveys can uh, fill in. So by fusing the two, we aim to move towards like in months 18 of getting a better understanding of travel to work estimates and adding the uh, potential uncertainties around it. And in the longer term, we are looking to convert it to a fully equilibrium economical model that the housing market, job markets, and the population can be modeled separately and then augmented together, moving towards a form of like a digital twin uh, for mobility. Thanks, that's all I had. And uh, based on my time, hopefully it hits the hit eight minutes. Thank you very much, Carve. Uh, now, while we uh, get you on screen, just a reminder to everyone watching us online, please do submit your questions via Slido. If you're not already there, it's bit.ly slash slidodb45. Uh, I will come to the room first for questions. Do remember, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, do remember to keep your questions short, as you will be against the clock. Uh, and do feel free to tell us who you are and where you're from, though do remember we are on the record. So who would like to ask in the room the first question of Carve? Um, Ollie Tiftemore from uh, uh, Department of Education. Um, might be, uh, I'm misunderstanding what you're doing, but pre and post COVID, there's the amount of travel to work is obviously reducing. So I don't know, you know, a lot of people working three or four days a week rather than five days a week. So I, I, does, does your model allow for the extent to which people are changing their travel habits, even if they're traveling to the same destination? Yes, that's true. Uh, so what uh, we would be doing or we are trying to do here is that using the National Travel Survey, which is a survey of the travel habits of the people, that survey happened both pre-COVID and after COVID. And we are trying to get some understanding of how the people have might have shifted towards the hybrid working of working from home before and after. But this would give even a better reflection when the model is segmented by industrial types and occupation types. So for instance, office-based workers are more likely to be able to work from home when you compare them with sort of lucky people in the construction. Uh, businesses or the manual type workers. So these are the things that is in our future improvement segmentation further of the model to capture different behavioral patterns within different parts of the economy. However, the model already at the aggregate level uh, consider and account for changes in the travel patterns. That's coming from the National Travel Survey. Great. You know, that's one of the examples of how the surveys can be helpful in fusing and helping the big data estimates. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm gonna go online for the next question. Uh, Jonathan, good evening to you. Jonathan asks, is there any interest in assessing the quality of people's journeys to work? Well, this is actually a 
based on the data, but if you you mean by quality, yes, uh, we are looking into, we are using the machine learning techniques uh, to sort of understanding a different type of people and the patterns of traveling as well. So by quality, we are looking for a leveling up angle here as well, but like a different type of people, how they can get access to their jobs, what the accessibility would look like, how the housing prices, etc., would affect them if they are further away from the jobs and they're like a cleaners who cannot go like a, and live in the central London unless they are in the multiple households areas. So these are the things that can be actually answered when we are moving toward more like a longer term plan of creating it, uh, molding it to the economy and equilibrium type models. Brilliant, thanks. Now I'll come back to the room for the next question. Raise your hand if you've got one, come down to the front. Hello, I'm Ian. You'll uh, meet me later. Um, I've looked into using mobile network data for transport operators in the past, and, and one of the problems, or the problem that keeps coming up is it's really expensive. Um, would it be possible for the ONS just to buy it so that we can all use it? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, well. ONS, if you're aware of, we have a we are working on a, a system called the integrated data platform or integrated data services, with the hope of like sharing the data across the government. And actually, this question was a question which was in our mind when we went for a procurement of the mobile phone data this time round. The contract would be soon signed, but hasn't yet been in a week or so. But then after that, when the data comes to the integrated data services, the aim is buying it once for the use of multiple departments. Uh, it's a negotiation going on with the data providers. It won't be free, but it would be discounted in a way uh, because we have bought it once and then we put it in the system and then the, the cost would be less. But that's actually the question for more of like a rather than my team and myself as a sort of like a technical side on our procurement side who would be able to provide further um, insights into that. But the, the purpose of the integrated data services data program is exactly what you mentioned, uh, to buy it cheaper for the whole government rather than each of us do it separately for the procurement. Great, thank you. Um, I've got a question online from Jeremy. Do you look at the type of transport used in the journeys, for example, car, train or coach? That's, again, one of the uh, things that we want to do in the next round. Uh, but the data is something that we would require for that. And that's a part of the discussion we currently have, again, with the mobile phone data providers. They, uh, we need to test and check the algorithms of assessing the uh, mode of travel. Uh, but yes, that's, that's in the plan, the short answer uh, for the longer term future, that we can combine those data and then remove the biases, etc., through the modeling insights uh, to get a more uh, sort of like a confidence in the data that it would produce. Excellent, thank you. I'll come back to the room for the next question. Anyone in the room? Otherwise, I'll go back online to Simon Briscoe. Evening to you, Simon. Um, Simon asks, have you thought about getting home postcode data from large employers, along with an estimate of the extent of working from home? He worries that the models will have very little hard data in them. Uh, sorry, can you repeat the question? So home postcode data, is it? Um, getting home postcode data from large employers uh, along with an estimate of the extent of working from home. Ah, well, 
that's a really interesting question. We are looking into different data sets uh, for understanding jobs and IDBR, uh, which ONS produces one of them. And part of these things is looking into sort of like a working registration data uh, and the big offices sort of data registrars on the workplaces, etc. Uh, but those things need to be anonymized, need to be aggregated and make sure that it's confidential, etc. When, when, when it's shared for the analysis, come just you cannot just use it that way. And these are the things that uh, our team in the index team in ONS are working on, trying to get a better data. But in fact, jobs is one of the hardest data to get. Uh, and any suggestion around this, specifically in any other departments who might be working on it, would be well, well, most welcome. Excellent, thank you. Uh, any more questions in the room? I've got one down here. Um, I came in late, so could you tell me the purpose of your uh, collecting on this data, please? Um, it, for the population and mobile, mobility estimates. So on the, this example that I presented today was a travel to work estimates. It's census collecting this information every 10 years. The aim within the census transformation is collecting it in more frequent way uh, for agile decision making. Uh, and the travel to work estimates is used for uh, for various different departments, like a DLOC looking into the leveling up angle of it to see how different population segments would act, have access to jobs and also for planning um, of um, infrastructure and all those things the DFT would be interested in that and the developing of the national transport models and other national level models. So that's the purpose uh, of the program. Great, thank you. And I'm going to go online for two final related questions. Uh, Jonathan asks, what are the policy and operational uses to which this analysis will be put? And Anonymous says, this is based on travel. How easy would it be to make the system for another area, uh, for example, the built environment and decarbonisation? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, the first question, can you repeat that again? Sorry about this, uh, the second one I got here. Yep, so the policy and operational uses to which the analysis will be put and um, yep. how easy it would be to make this system for other areas, uh, for example, decarbonisation of the built environment, energy systems yep. and energy improvement. So uh, mobile phone data overall, uh, this analysis of the travel to work for the policy use, as I, as I explained briefly now, uh, it can be used for many different uh, reasons. Some of them is developing the national transport model and understanding the behavior or patterns of the mobility so that the government can plan best for the infrastructure and the responses to the demands. But also from the leveling up angle, if you look into sort of like a job accessibility for various different population groups, uh, these data would give you an insight of how how people get access to their jobs and whether their groups of the people are excluded uh, from the opportunities that the rest of the people might have access to, where the houses and where the jobs are, and how you can best link them up together. And uh, in the, on the second questions, yeah, exactly, when you link up the jobs and uh, houses, assuming that if the houses are built, like if we give our cities in the hand of developers who want to find this sort of like empty lands, develop the housing there, which is far away from all the jobs, you could, can uh, uh, imagine what the environmental impacts of that would be. It would be more car dependent, it would be less possible to provide the sort of public transport or like other modes of transport for those places. So these type of data and these type of insights 
can help us to uh, get those insights. And this type of modeling can then link to the environmental emissions and the externalities models, which can estimate what the byproduct of the travel to work patterns would be when you have it by modes and when you know what the travel distances and the time and accessibilities are and how you can actually rectify the issues of the housing and the jobs locations. There are many examples of this that I can provide, but I don't think it would fit the eight minutes really. Excellent. And that actually brings uh, our second eight minutes uh, to an end. So Carve, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for your attention. Thank you. And um, sorry to those of you online who uh, submitted some brilliant questions that we didn't quite get to as well. And if you're interested in this, I think the Transport Select Committee currently has an inquiry into the Department of Transport data strategy, which touches on a lot of these issues as well. Um, so we now move to our second speaker of the evening, and that's Nick. Um, so this is the second Databytes I've spoken at. Um, if those of you that have been following Databytes for a number of years will have heard me speaking previously as the Oil and Gas Authority. It's the same organization, I'm in the, the same role, but we have rebranded as the North Sea Transition Authority, and I'll just uh, briefly touch on why that is. So you may not have heard of us, we're a small arm's length body. Uh, we regulate and influence the oil and gas and carbon storage industries. And at the moment we have three priorities. Firstly, to ensure UK energy security of supply, to decarbonize that supply through <coughs> emissions reductions, whilst ensuring that we accelerate the energy transition to net zero. So essentially, we're saying that there is a current demand for offshore oil and gas in the UK. We should use UK oil and gas where we can rather than importing. But at the same time, it's really important to ensure that that supply is um, a low level of emissions. So we're looking to reduce that where data becomes really important in that, that part of it as well. But then going forward as a country, we're moving towards renewables and we need to do that to ensure net zero for 2050. So those are our, our three pillars of what we do. So I'm going to focus today, obviously, on the data aspects of that. We have a number of digital portals. So we have uh, four of them here that I spoke previously on the National Data Repository when we were looking to create that. It's a repository of data that collects industry data, so legacy oil and gas data in particular, and we hold that as a national asset. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's important, of why we retain that data and how we're seeing it being used in other parts of the sector. We've got a portal called Energy Pathfinder. Energy Pathfinder enables the supply chain to see what contracts are available across the energy transition market. We have an open data site that is uh, geospatial data, essentially. It's data that we have created in doing our regulatory business and also holds other industry data that's uh, openly available effectively under the equivalent of an open government license. We then have the Energy Portal, and that's a platform that we provide to a number of other government organizations and enables government um, regulators and entities to interact with the industry. So if industry need to do something, they need to apply for a consent or a license, then they'll do that through the Energy Portal. That obviously also creates data that we're then able to use in some of our um, areas. The main thing I wanted to talk about today, though, was how we've collaborated with other government organizations in this space. So one of the areas that we found really important um, in our data front is to make sure we've got data that works together without duplicating that across platforms and organizations. 
So we created on our geospatial systems this NG Lease app with a number of other organizations, as you can see here. It essentially pulls the data in from those different sources. It enables them policymakers or industry or um, academic researchers to get a broader understanding of all of the different aspects of the, the energy system, predominantly in the North Sea, but across the UK continental shelf. What this showed us was that collaborating with other organizations is really important. It's going to be the only way that we can actually deliver on our, our digital, um, digital aims. So in 2021, we created a task force. You might have heard of the Energy Digitalization Task Force, which was led predominantly by Ofgem. This is essentially a, a sister task force to that, where we're looking at offshore energy um, across the different parts of that sector. So I'm talking oil and gas, uh, offshore wind, carbon storage being the three main <coughs> ones, but also potentially in the future for industries such as Tidal. Those industries have got huge data. They've got massive amounts. They've got great data management functions, both in government and also within the industry. But what they weren't doing was working together. So we had a lot of siloed data that wasn't interacting particularly well or at all. And we had people that weren't interacting in terms of knowing what was going on in those different parts of the, of the sector. So we worked with NG Systems Catapult to uh, come up with a strategy. And that was published uh, in the back end of 2022 which had in its seven recommendations. So three strategic recommendations around ensuring that we've got unified data principles. So talking a bit about data standards and, and principles and making sure that the underlying data could work across the sector. Delivering a common data toolkit, making sure that the portals that are available actually were either interoperable or were available to use across those sectors. So I showed you four portals that we have as, a, as an organization, you multiply that by the other government entities, but then also the industry bodies, you've got a huge number of digital platforms that potentially don't talk to each other. So how can we access that? How can we ensure the data pipelines to get the data from A to B? And then driving cross-sector digitalization, looking at the data and digital skills across the sector. Are they available? Uh, is the sector complying with best practice in terms of cybersecurity? So some of the softer issues, but are, the, are still really important in terms of the data approach. Beneath that, then, there were some more detailed sort of work streams in terms of how do we actually put those recommendations into practice? So we created three task groups around those three strategic recommendations, and these are now working. We've got them chaired by different organizations. So starting on data principles is being um, chaired by uh, colleagues at the Open Data Institute. And there we're looking, as I said, at the standards, at the best practice, uh, saying, should we have a voluntary code for um, putting in place that uh, best practice? And do we need to put a data management framework in place across those different parts of the subsector? The Common Data Toolkit is um, a really big work stream. It's being co-chaired by um, ourselves, by our Head of Digital Services, and the Net Zero Technology Center, whose focus is ensuring the energy uh, transition, particularly in offshore energy. This work stream is looking at, should we have a data catalog that enables people to work out where the data is stored across the different parts of the sector? Should we have a broader digital infrastructure? Should we look at data fabric? Should we look at having consistency across the APIs that are in place across the sector? But also starting to look at some of the use cases for the data. So one of the things we saw when we did that energy lease app was that actually 
there were parts of the industry that we hadn't realized could make use of the data that now they knew where it was, were able to access it. So taking legacy oil and gas data from our national data repository, and then we're seeing that being reprocessed and used for successful offshore wind rounds in the Scott Wind Round. By taking that data, they don't have to shoot seismic data again. Therefore, it's quicker, it's cheaper for people. It reduces the burden. But if people don't know how to access that data, then, then there's no value being added from it. The third work stream, as I said, is looking more at the softer uh, aspects. So we've already done a digital maturity survey across the sector. So this is giving us a really good indicator as to whether the industry is ready to use the technologies that we're talking about. And what we found in, in this recent survey was though about 66% of uh, the respondents felt that they had the digital skills in-house for current technologies, that dropped to only a third of organizations feeling they had the skills in-house for emerging technologies. So boards love talking about AI and machine learning, but if you firstly can't access the data because you don't know where it is, and then you don't have the skills to use that te those technologies, you're not going to be able to add any value to it. Um, my final slide, I just wanted to give you an indication of the organizations that have been involved in this work. It's definitely a, a work of collaboration. The first aspect was to get people into a, a virtual room and actually start talking about these topics. Um, and I think this has been the initial challenge for me, is making sure that we've got the right people in the room and we've got the views and opinions from such a, a broad audience. Um, with eight seconds to go, I would say, if you'd like to learn more about the work or be involved in this work, please reach out to us. We're interested in hearing from other sectors because I think that's a great way that you learn. So thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, just a reminder to those of you watching us online, please submit your questions via Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb45, capital S, capital DB, if you're not already there. And do get them in early so we don't time them out this time. Uh, let's come to the room for the first question. Who would like to go first? Um, you said people didn't have the AI skills. Would you be able to bring down the price of AI skills? Would that make any difference? So it's quite expensive to learn it, isn't it? I think it is, and I think so. The starting point for us was to understand where the the gaps were between the current workforce and the the future workforce, which is where we got that information. I think the the aspect of it that we found quite interesting was that that was consistent across the um, the different subsectors. The bit that we found was that it was the smaller companies that perhaps didn't have data strategies, didn't have digital skills strategies that were having more of a challenge, which perhaps isn't surprising, but was good to see based on, on data. And I think that goes to the cost aspect. Larger organizations can afford to fund those sort of skills programs. Smaller organizations, it's a challenge. So what, whilst we perhaps can't bring down the cost of, the, of gaining the skills, what we can bring down the cost of is, is the data. So in this area, we're talking about very technical geological data, which can be very expensive to go and collect and create yourself by making that available free of charge, um, essentially with some small data, uh, data transfer charges potentially, but essentially free of charge, we bring down the cost of, of training sets for AI for example. So not so much on the skills front, but on the, the, core, the core data, that's where we can potentially impact on the cost. 
Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. Uh, another question from Jonathan. This is great work in obviously a controversial area. How public will the information be and how do you build trust even between the parties involved since the data may expose uncomfortable truths? Sure. So firstly, our, our data, so North Sea Transition Authority data is freely and openly available. So if you wanted to, you could log on to our, our systems and there were some QR codes earlier in the, the presentation that will enable you to do that and you can access it free of charge. Um, so from that point of view, in terms of transparency, the data is there. Some of the industry data that we collect, we hold um, under confidentiality periods depending on the data type. So if an organization has spent a huge amount of money collecting seismic data, for, for example, that will have a longer confidential, confident, confidentiality period to enable them to get the commercial value out of it. So there are, are some aspects there in terms of whether data is open or, or closed. Um, in terms of the, the controversy around it, that's never been a consideration for us. We say that the data has been generated. It's not, it doesn't then generate any commercial value other than the ones that I just um, spoke about. So we, we've always gone with transparency with data and it being controversial is, is not going to stop us. The, the bit I think that perhaps is important is seeing that data that has been collected through legacy oil and gas being used for new industries. So if we if we put a cost charge in or we said we're not going to release it because it might somebody might not like it, actually the wider net zero agenda is not going to get so much benefit out of it. Thanks. Uh, let's come to the room for the next one and we've got a hand up over there. Thank you, Martin Dittus. I work for a South London council and I'm very interested in your data toolkit work, the second uh, branch of, of your three strategic goals. Um, from what I understand, part of the work is to identify data that is being held, B, make sure that is known within the sector, C, make it available for use. Um, of course, this is... Uh, uh, this is a kind of information that you don't uh, that, that you um, that changes as data changes as, as uh, the use of data changes and so on um, and potentially there's a long there's, there's going to be an ongoing set of activities around that so my question is um, give, given those potential complexities to what extent did it require investment either in terms of staffing or in terms of information infrastructure to support all the, all that kind of work Sure. So I guess the, the challenge is the number of organisations we're talking about. So yes, investment is always important. I think one thing that we found with industry that we're regulating is that data management functions are quite often the first area that budget cuts happen because to a lot of people, not this crowd I'm sure, data is dull and therefore it's easy to, to, to cut budgets. I think the, the important thing we're seeing with the the work that we're doing is we're putting a, we're highlighting that to the people that are making those kind of investment decisions. Actually, it's important to put money into the underlying feedstock for what we're talking about, the data, to be able to do, use the innovative technology. In terms of investment for the organizations involved in, in the task force, um, it, it's varied depending on what it is. We're lucky as a government organisation in that we're industry funded, so we've been able to demonstrate to our board that we're putting digital products out into the industry and academia that are actually adding value, they're adding that value through uh, the net zero agenda. 
emissions reduction, security of supply, not in your traditional return on investment of efficiency savings and profits. Um, that argument has helped us and enabled us to be able to continue to fund. Great, thank you. I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, this is from Dan Klein. Good evening, Dan. Does the offshore industry regulation include presumed open for data like the onshore off-gem regulations? So we haven't formally adopted the, exactly the same definition of, of the presumed open that the off-gem use and some of the ODI um, open data definitions. But what we have said for this task force, the principle is that we can collectively add value if that data is open. So I think the short answer is probably yes, but in a slightly broader sense, some of our data types are closed because of the commercial element but it's much more of there has to be a reason to make the data closed rather than there has to be a deep reason to make it open. So open first and then, and then we'll see on the, the more commercially sensitive ones. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back to the room. We've got one down the front. Hi, I'm Joanna from the UK Statistics Authority. Um, you mentioned that you're trying to collect, or collecting data that is then uh, used by industry bodies. Um, are you also using it to produce statistics or send it to the central government department to produce statistics? We are. So we submit um, a data in for the OVR and for, we also generate reports on very specific industry statistics. So production efficiency and unit cost being ones that the industry uh, needs to understand. Decommissioning cost is a big one, which has an impact both on the industry in terms of how we could potentially reuse infrastructure, but from a public purse point of view, the, it links to the cost elements, so trying to reduce the cost on decommissioning. So we, we have a, a number of reports that we firstly used to provide in quite a static form. We've now moved to more dynamic reporting um, on, a, on a couple of areas. Thanks. And I'm going to go online for the final one. Mary Susan Barry. Good evening, Mary Susan. Did having the energy catapult in place assist or hinder data sharing and collaboration among different parties? Would you recommend a catapult for civil service modernisation and reform? Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I think by having energy systems catapult doing the kind of coordination and the lead on writing the, the initial report enabled us to get the right voices in the room. So I think if we as an organization have gone and tried to uh, get people from renewables and other sectors in the room to have the conversation, I think we would have initially got some pushback. So having sort of an independent body coming in and saying, um, doing all the workshops, doing the focus groups really helps us in terms of getting people to go along and starting that conversation. So I think, yes, it helps in terms of collaboration. Um, it, it's helped us on framing that strategy, the delivery aspects of it in terms of the actual data and what we will be doing going forward, I think needs to sit with the, the government organisations and the industry because they're the ones that are holding the data and have the ability to deliver on it. And perfectly to time. Excellent. Uh, that was great, Nick. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and just to say, Nick mentioned that she's spoken before. I think that was Databyte 7, which you can, of course, find on the IFG website. Uh, and also Laura Sands, who chaired the sister uh, Energy Digitalisation Task Force, has spoken on a couple of occasions at Databytes as well. So you can find that in our archive. Uh, we move to our third speaker this evening now, and that's Penny. Thank you very much. 
Yes, hello. Um, my name is Penny Babb, and I work for the Office for Statistics Regulation, or OSR. And we are the regulatory arm of the UK Statistics Authority and, and set the standards for government statistics through our code of practice for stats. Our vision for statistics is that stats serve the public good. We carry out our role by looking at how stats are produced, how stats are used, and how statistics are valued. And at the heart of all of our judgments as a regulator is our code of practice. It shows what is needed to have confidence that statistics are independent and objective, accurate and reliable, coherent and relevant, accessible and usable. And my role is in leading our work on the code of practice. And I'm here to tell you about our new uh, review of the code. Overall, I reckon people who know me would say they trust me. I could be wrong, I hope not, uh, but they might say that I'm honest, upfront, reliable. But then you probably should ask, what can you trust me to do and why? Say you were looking to get some house improvements done. Back in the day, I could change the fuse and a plug, but you probably wouldn't want me fixing your electrics. Trust isn't an attribute that you can ascribe to anyone or about a thing. It's something that someone decides about another person or an organization, etc. I can't make you trust me. You have to choose to. There also isn't a, a simple equation that trust is good and that mistrust is bad. It isn't automatically a good thing to trust. And sometimes a smart thing is to decide to not to. The philosopher Baroness Honora O'Neill recommends to trust intelligently. A Russian proverb adopted by President Ronald Reagan during the nuclear disarmament talk um, discussions um, between Russia and the US uh, was translated as trust but verify. And the phrase underpins the excellent work by Professor Pippa Norris in her recent book about trust called In Praise of Skepticism. She highlights the dangers of cynical beliefs, underestimating performance, or credulous faith, overestimating it. And they're right. You are safest to test, to verify that something is up to scratch before you trust it. But do so carefully, seeking out evidence to inform your decision not going on a gut reaction or on surface appearance. And this is also true in deciding about data and whether to use it. And I suggest that this has three layers. First, you can look at who, at those responsible to decide whether you can trust them. See if they're trustworthy. Do they show that they're competent at what they're doing? Are they honest or do they spin or exaggerate? Are they reliable? Do they do these things consistently? And the second thing you can do is to look at the what, the thing itself, and for evidence about its quality. What are its key characteristics? Can you tell how well it matches what good looks like, or does it do what it purports to do? And thirdly is why. Is it useful to you? Does it match what you need? And what is its value to you? 
And that basically sums up our code of practice. We call our three core principles or pillars trustworthiness, quality, and value, or TQV. And we adopted this framework for the code back in 2018. And it's proved to be successful in helping producers of official statistics produce robust and useful stats in ways that are open and impartial. And nothing showed this more clearly than the way statistics producers rose to the challenges of a pandemic. They were able to shift priorities, start new collections, pause others, and develop new tools for releasing statistics, all to respond to urgent new demands for information. Being able to do that required all the skill, professionalism, creativity, and confidence that they could muster. It wasn't about following a rule book, but instead having a clear guide on how to make important choices. Being firmly grounded on TQV enabled the analyst to see clearly that what mattered was serving the public good, to decide first and foremost what is in the public interest. Following the code is a fundamental aspect of producing official statistics. But the beauty of the framework is that it makes sense in loads of different settings and sectors. We run a voluntary scheme with an active community of practice, enabling anyone with an interest in TQV to hear from others applying the pillars um, in areas outside of official statistics. Government analysts are part of our scheme, but others come from a wide range of settings, such as local government, commercial organizations, think tanks, and the charity sector. Four years ago, we established an award for statistical excellence in TQV um, in partnership with the Royal Statistical Society and Civil Service World. Our most recent winner is Fable Data for their Data for Good program. Now, Fable is a private data company that's balancing their commercial interests with a solid commitment um, for serving the public good. And they provide their most granular data set on a pro, pro bono basis to um, governments, to academics, to national statistical producers. And essentially to help um, facilitate effective policy making and support innovative research. Now, we released our, edition, our second edition of the Code of Practice using the TQV framework in 2018. And it seems, seems an understatement to say that a lot has happened since then. And there's a, a much more evolving landscape for data and statistics. Many more people are interested in and engaging with data to understand the world. And there's also greater awareness and readiness to challenge the misuse of information. And tech advances are happening, it feels almost at a lightning pace. There are greater opportunities for bringing data together, but also very real and important quality issues to be faced when doing so. And given this context, OSR is beginning a review of the code of practice for statistics. The code is helpful beyond official statistics. And so we're keen to hear from anyone with an interest in data and stats on how we can strengthen the code to keep it relevant to the situations that producers face today and are on the horizon. On the 18th of September, we're opening a call for evidence that will remain open for comment until the 11th of December. And over the three months, we're holding a range of events um, to help stimulate reflections and ideas. We've lined up excellent topics and speakers, and you can book places via Eventbrite 
to, um, to attend one of our, our panel discussions. And we would love to hear from the Data Bytes audience, and you can find out more about our code review on the OSR website. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Penny. Um, a quick reminder, again, if you're watching us online, slido, bit.ly slash slido db45. Um, I'm going to start with an online question, actually. This is from Jonathan. Um, he says, we recently saw a significant reappraisal of GDP data as new information came in. Should we appropriately signal the potential magnitude of later updates up front? And if so, how can we do this without undermining the use? I think it's, it's really important to be open about the scale of revisions. It's, it is actually something that's in our code. We, we do talk about being clear about uh, what has changed and why, and understanding that scale is important. Context is everything, and I think understanding the numbers, understanding the reasons for the changes, what does it mean, how to make sense of them, um, is incredibly important. So yeah, absolutely. Great, thank you. Um, let's come down here, and I'll come to you next. Oh, it's very sweet of you. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, Penny, my name's Andrew, Andrew Edwards. I'm just a bloke. I'm simply interested in your presentation, concentrated a lot on England. And I just wondered if you could make some comments about your relationship with the devolved administrations in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Yeah, picking up on the, the particular illustration that I showed, we are actually responsible for regulating um, official statistics across the UK. So absolutely, devolved administrations are completely part of our remit, um, as well as all the individual producers of official stats within um, all parts of the UK, so across the England um, UK government departments, but quite a range of other organisations that are actually responsible for producing official stats. So it is a very wide remit and absolutely includes devolved administrations. Apologies. No, so it, the, 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 the slide was just an illustration of, of a dashboard of um, statistics in, in the COVID period, so, but it wasn't mean, meant to mean that it, our remit is only England. It absolutely is across the UK. Thanks. Uh, let's go to the back row. Good evening. Thank you. Um, my name's Conrad. Very quick question, really, about um, the misuse of government uh, statistics. There was a recent television programme um, about a week ago with a prominent MP um, relying upon a sample survey of some individuals in, in reference to the judiciary. The accusation was that uh, there was a significant problem with the family court system. However, the statistical sample was less than 0.0009% of the court cases in the UK for um, the last 10, 11 years. Is there a need for a regulatory um, backing um, for the misuse of public data um, in view of the harm that that can actually have to both individuals but also to public bodies themselves? Well, certainly, the Office for Statistics Regulation, we, we do take a, an active role um, as part of the UK Statistics Authority in, in challenging misuse and with a prime focus on the, the use uh, within, um, within government, um, and, and so certainly we would be looking at uh, issues, and issues can be raised with us. Actually, issues can be raised with us beyond um, use within government. Um, we certainly do get it raised by um, the use in public, in public debate, um, and we have occasion looked with, um, 
and how other political parties, for example, have used. But the primary thing, our, our, our main regulatory remit is within um, the government setting. Um, but we do try and speak up to the importance of the way that uh, statistics are handled, the way that debate is handled. And our focus is on trying to ensure that people are thinking around demonstrating the trustworthiness of the behaviours in terms of the way that they're gathering the information, the understanding of that kind of information, and the context for why is that actually an appropriate source. And if it's not, um, actually being open to that challenge. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, we would encourage people to be using trustworthiness, quality, and value as a way of actually looking at and thinking about the nature of the information that's informing debate. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. Uh, another question from Simon Briscoe. Uh, Simon asks, given many of the most loved and most used statistics, like those for trade, crime, migration and RPI, are not classified as national statistics, does the designation mean anything? Uh, not being a national statistic does not stop or reduce use. That's absolutely right. And the really important thing with understanding the nature of statistics is, is of official statistics in, in, in relation to the, um, how the, the statistics are being produced, is the openness of producers to explain the nature of the figures and to be open about the strengths and limitations. The critical thing with official statistics is they're being published because they're useful. They're important, they're useful. What the, Simon mentioned the national statistics designation, what that actually is referring to are the, the subset of official statistics that have been reviewed by us as the regulator against the code. And where we've actually carried out that assessment, we've then um, given the awarded national statistics designation. But all official statistics, the bottom line is they're applying the code. Fundamental thing that those um, producers are thinking about will be how are they meeting the code, that they're applying the code, and to explain the strengths and limitations. That's a critical thing that we're seeking in the way that they are explaining the information. Where that isn't done, um, please let us know. <laughs> we're keen to know and we're keen to challenge where we can actually make sure that those standards are actually being improved. So Simon's right. Official statistics, whether or not they're carrying the designation, they're important, they're useful, and, and let us know if you have problems because we're, we're here to help. Great, thank you. I'm going to stay online for the next question. This is from Tom King. Hello to you, Tom. Philosophy research is not always understood as practical in public policy. Have you been able to advocate for the value continuing investment on questions you've not thought of yet? Oh, that's really good. Um, I think we do in that one of the critical things that we did when we brought in the second edition of the code by bringing in this framework, the value part of that framework is incredibly important. By thinking about the important questions, it's driving producers to actually um, think for themselves about what are the important questions that need to be asked, then be thinking about the kind of data that's actually needed to actually answer them. Um, but also, incredibly importantly, to be speaking with stakeholders, with users, where they're actually using the information as well. And that means that there's actually a much wider range and much deeper insight about the nature of uh, the important questions that are being asked and how, what, what information is needed in order to, to support that kind of use. So, yeah, whether or not the questions are always within government or whether they're within the wider community is actually really important. And I think the value pillar is the one that's actually driving that focus. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, keep it very quick. Uh, we've got one at the back. Um, thanks, Holly Cliftonmore. Um, you mentioned a number of external factors that are affecting the reasons why you want to look at the code. I wondered whether there are any sort of internal functions about the operation of the code itself that you wanted to look at through this review. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think, having been part of the team that actually wrote the code, the, the second edition, um, uh, partly it, it was the realization, gosh, five years has moved really quickly. And we spent a lot of time actually trying to really get TQV, trustworthiness, quality, and value, really embedded. Um, we've been doing some recent work over the last few years in, around the national statistics designation. And that work has been really important in speaking with quite a number of producers and other stakeholders about their understanding and the importance that we've then seen of the code in the way it's being applied. So we've actually seen an awful lot of um, uh, emphasis on the importance of the code by the use by analysts. But I think we've got a lot further to go. And, and in a sense, for us, the challenge is getting the message out. Um, but we're definitely aware of the fact that there are probably aspects of the code that we need to strengthen. Um, so I think there probably are some areas that we do need to. So we're keen and open to hearing that kind of feedback. Oh, and I see. Brilliant. Sorry, overran. Sorry. Not at all. <laughs> my, my fault, not yours. Okay. <laughs> uh, Penny, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And as Penny said, I'm sure the Data Bytes audience will uh, definitely come forward with views. So please do visit the OSR website for full details of the review. Uh, we turn now to our final speaker of the evening, and that's Ian. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Ian, and I'm here to talk to you about two things, data and the built environment, as the, uh, as the slide suggests. Um, one thing I've noticed about the, the talks tonight and, and reviewing the videos from the past is they're all very tangible and fact-based and often about the application of technology in a particular area. Uh, we might be going slightly off script on that front with this last talk. Uh, maybe consider this more the, the editorial part of the evening. Um, I hope you indulge uh, the change of pace. Um, this is uh, a diagram I came up with the other day uh, to summarize my career today, such as it is. Um, basically, the thing I'm trying to get across here is I've been lucky enough to work with a wide range of different um, large organizations who are predominantly responsible for infrastructure in the UK, uh, mostly transport, as you can see, but, but a few other bits and bobs as well. Um, and I, what I've been looking for in my career is, is the opportunity to make a difference with data to the built environment. You'll be unsurprised to hear. Um, my most recent uh, gig, can I do a pointer? Look at that, I've never done that before, is, is over here. It's the Houses of Parliament Restoration and Renewal Program. I was very, very excited to get this job because uh, thinking about this program to renew this uh, historical, culturally significant building, um, when you dig into it, there is so much density of information in that asset. You go into the basement, there's pipes everywhere, there's Ethernet cables, there's electric circuit boards, there's, the building's riddled with asbestos. You know, we've all read about it in the press. Um, it's where I get most of my information as well. And, and it felt like this is a paradigmatic opportunity to really show what's possible with digital technologies to enable a program of this scale and complexity. Um, unfortunately, a month after I joined, 
the parliament dissolved the sponsor body that was running the program. Uh, and a lot of my immediate digital aspirations uh, got put on hold or on ice or scaled down, if nothing else. And so that gave me a little bit of time to step back and think, rather than sulking about that, uh, let's reflect on the wider picture, the, the sectoral picture. Um, and that's why I started scribbling some notes about a book that ultimately is going to become Data in the Built Environment. And the first thing I, I wanted to start with was the problem statement. Uh, and ultimately, the problem statement is, does data actually add any value to the built environment whatsoever? That's the null hypothesis, right? We uh, exist in a time of massive, ineffable, hyper-object crises, climate emergency, inequality, you name it. The built environment has a role to play in all of that. Can we actually use data to uh, benefit uh, that? Um, and I think that's a, it, it's worth asking that question, in my opinion, to just, just, to, just to indulge the counter-narrative. Um, there's a lot going on. We continue to build things. Uh, in doing so, we are increasing our stock of physical assets. But in doing so, we're exhausting our natural resources. We're exhausting our public finances. And the net effect is we have more and more to maintain with fewer resources in the face of massive resilience challenges as a result of our damage to the climate. Uh, and simultaneously, as we've heard already from our speakers, trying to transition to a sustainable asset base. Uh, and on the other side of the fence, in, in our economy, intangible assets are becoming much more uh, valued relative to physical assets, IP, brands, data, etc. I think that's a fascinating time to be alive. And there's, a, there's an opportunity there, I feel, to take advantage of all this digital technology and help you leverage it to inform how we address the physical world and the human beings, how we inform the human beings that are addressing the physical world. But by and large, it isn't happening just yet, by and large. Oh, over, it's a massive generalization, but, but you get the idea. So part of this talk is to persuade you to care about the built environment. I'm assuming you don't already, but perhaps you do, in which case, apologies. Why should you care? It, it, we all depend on it. It consumes a lot of money. It accounts for a huge part directly of our carbon footprint, not to mention all the stuff we do within those spaces that we've created for ourselves. It's also an incredibly complex ecosystem of specialisms and organizations, many of which date back to the Victorian era. And it's also a very human industry. Uh, the, 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 between the information domain and the physical domain is almost always a human being. There's almost always tacit knowledge being used, not just explicit knowledge. Um, and finally, it's ego-driven. The way you get ahead in this profession is to build things. We haven't quite got to the point where you get ahead by reusing things or, or repurposing things. Hopefully, that will change. What well, the, the built environment isn't yet, in general, is data savvy. There's few organizations with a mature data culture. There's a lack of data ownership. It is a systemic system. It fulfills society's needs systemically, but we don't think about it systemically. We split it down into lots of little bit bitty organizations and ask them to locally optimize. And we haven't invested sufficiently in realizing the kind of interoperability that allows us to model how the built environment meets society's needs as a whole, rather than through those individual organizations. Uh, the other thing is we, we struggle to translate digital insight into physical activity in a low friction way. It often involves sending people to site with tools, for example. And we haven't necessarily enabled that working population with user-centered tools that make it easy to leverage data or to the point of the earlier talk, the skills that they need in order to do so. Um, so what I wanted to find when I sat down and started writing was that kind of unifying theory of if we just do this one thing and we do it properly, 
then uh, the built environment's going to be solved. We'll be leveraging data, happy days, etc. Um, I am apparently not uh, smart enough to discover that single unifying theory. Uh, but what I took away was a few lessons um, and then a few enablers. So the, the, the lessons to me are, first of all, we need to focus on societal outcomes and not ego. Uh, that's individual ego, but it's also the ego of the, the mega projects that are aimed at building big grand things that are actually thinking about who's going to benefit from them. Um, we need to reckon with complexity, particularly the human side of complexity. Uh, the built environment is part of the larger human social infrastructure. It's not a technology problem per se. You can't throw SaaS products at it until it's fixed. You need to reckon with what it takes to make humans make decisions better and leverage information better. Um, we need to take that systemic view of the built environment to start to think about how we join the different data entities in order to answer those bigger questions. And a big part of that is in creating the kind of artifacts that generate shared meaning, be those taxonomies, ontologies, interoperability specifications, that sort of thing. We also need to account and develop architectures for the wide, and, and I think this is one of the things that really characterizes our sector, the huge variety of data types, from alphanumeric, documents, reports, point clouds, LIDAR, 3D models. It, it's very broad, and it needs to be consistent and available to people in a consistent way. And we need to feed on that tacit and explicit knowledge cycle. So feeding information to people, getting information out of their heads, catalyzing the, the feedback loop and creating more knowledge through the, uh, through the knowledge creation cycle. These are all data problems, but I haven't necessarily phrased them as data problems. Um, in order to solve those data problems, we're going to need data practitioners that exist in organizational cultures that support that data. And again, that's not something that's always characterized the sector. We need to be able to give them agency, funding, and support, encourage them to take technically feasible, deliverable solutions to these problems, to not get carried away with the hype trains and start blabbering about digital twins and blockchain to the exclusion of what the industry is actually ready to uh, you know, ingest and metabolize. Um, we need to maintain that compelling need and that alignment to societal outcomes. And with a bit of fortitude, and working through capable, diverse teams, there is opportunity there to actually make a difference. So there is 140,000 words to substantiate all the opinions I've just spouted, but that's my soapbox for tonight. Uh, and hopefully I've persuaded you to care a little bit more about data and the built environment. Thank you. Thank you. A reminder to those of you online, do keep those questions coming via Slido. And if you've joined us late, it's bit.ly slash slidodb45. I'm going to come to the room for the first question this time. Who would like to go first? I can, I can hold it until somebody comes <laughs> forward and asks one. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll, I'll ask one and you don't want that. Let's come. Wait, wait for the mic a second. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Hello, my name is Andrew. I just wondered what is happening with the parliamentary estate. So, you know, what's going on at the Mo? Um, the well, so there, the I'm I'm trying to avoid officially answering questions on behalf of the program, but in in essence, it needs work. Everyone accepts that it needs work. Um, the parliamentary estates team continue to maintain the majority of the state. The delivery authority continues to exist and develop business plans for approval by parliament to renew the asset in a way that is acceptable to the ultimate customer, which is parliament themselves. Um, and the hope is 
that will happen at some point in the near future. Um, and that's, that's all in the public domain and reported oh, yeah. in the press. So there you, there you go. Excellent. Um, I'll go to you, um, and then I've got a couple of online questions, but noted. Hi. Uh, thank you for your really interesting uh, presentation. The, you discussed the need to think systemically and not just get focused on granular issues, but then also, ha but then how do you do that without presenting a problem too big to actually fix in sort of an initial project? Like, is there a, a perfect size for a first project that proves the power of data in the built environment? Is it a city, a urban area? I think this is something that the Centre for Digital Built Britain tackled really well in its time. Um, and the Credo project, which came out of that, continues to um, tackle. They focused on resilience, which I think is a really good use case, uh, modeling the interdependencies between uh, power, water, and telecoms networks to start with. Um, so I think rather than trying to build a, as much as people like us would love to get 200 million pounds and build a digital twin of the entire country, and it'd probably be completely wrong. Focusing on those particular use cases of how do we understand the resilience of the, the power network to flooding, as Credo are doing, I think over a, a, a specific geographic location, I think that's big enough and interconnected enough and systemic enough to, to prove the value of that approach. Uh, and to get some of the foundational infrastructure in place, such as the interoperability specifications to show that that's possible, uh, without being so big that it becomes an ineffable kind of uh, AI-type problem, if that makes sense. Thanks. I mean, th this sort of follows on nicely from that. Jeremy asks, if you had to try one thing to start with data in the built environment, is there one project that you would try to implement? <laughs> uh, I have always been very taken with mobility as a service, being a, being a transport guy in, in general. I think when you look at what keeps a railway line running, you need a functional power network, you need a functional telecoms network, you need drainage, uh, you know, and, and then you start to think about, as we've already heard from our first speaker, the, the movement between modes uh, that people take in order to complete their journeys. I think that's a beautiful network representation of uh, interconnected data, uh, and having worked for both Network Rail and National Highways and Transport for Wales, I can tell you there isn't a huge, there is, there is data exchange, but there isn't really that forum for how do we exchange near real-time information, in part because, as I alluded to in my question earlier, we don't necessarily have access to the, the level of mobile network data that would be required to do that. So I'm sure there's someone who, in the DFT who might be listening to this saying, hey, that's my job, I'm literally doing that right now, Ian, what are you talking about? But it feels like that would be a wonderful thing to be able to capitalize on. Great, this also follows on quite nicely from that. So Anonymous, good evening to you, Anonymous. Should there be a requirement for all local authorities and county councils to develop building information modeling for infrastructure investment? That's a hard one. I, as much as I love BIM, it, and I do, it, it wouldn't necessarily be my priority. I, I feel like what you have to do is think about the use cases. Again, going back to the societal outcomes. How, if you're building a new library or a new section of road or whatever, obviously we'd all rather have a BIM model than not have a BIM model, right? But is the investment in the BIM model actually worth prioritizing? Or would, if you have a finite amount of data resources, would you actually be better at surfacing some operational information or footfall data or working on an API or building a taxonomy that allows you to 
to have a conceptual model that unites. I'm not convinced it's necessarily the priority. It could be in some instances, but I wouldn't go as far as saying that's absolutely it. Got to do that. Cool. Thank you. Uh, we had a question at the back. Oh, good evening. Uh, thank you again. Um, in a way, it leads on with all the other questions, which is where does the problem really lie then in terms of the data and how do you start to um, correlate and manage that information in a proactive way to start solving the problems that you've alluded to? Uh, for example, in, in linking into your experience with the rail industry, the Victorian architecture um, infrastructure of bridges and viaducts, um, how do you look at uh, capturing the information about the state of those bridges in order to be able to then preempt the management and uh, rebuilding of them? Yeah, I mean, I started my career working with bridge data, so that's a personal favorite of mine. Um, and there, it does exist. Don't, so obviously monitoring IoT devices have come on leaps and bounds and are increasingly present on assets, particularly major bridges. Even for minor bridges, there's relatively detailed information on their condition that's taken during uh, cyclical maintenance and that sort of thing. I think what hasn't quite landed for me is that all goes up to the professional head of civil structures who does his maintenance plans and you know, that's it, right? Or maybe it goes to the ORR for some for performance metrics. What, what there isn't that institutional reflection to do is get that data out into a common data set with a bunch of other people that own bridges and then understand how that impacts, that risk profile impacts the network of transport across the country. I feel like there's very, because we've created fiefdoms in the maintenance of our infrastructure, there isn't the incentive to do that. It doesn't necessarily incur, occur to the leadership of our organizations to do that, and therefore we're missing out on a whole set of use cases that could consider things systemically because we're focused on that small maintenance question, which is important, but it's, part of, it's a subset of the question. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to move us on to a final question. Sorry. Just a follow-up Very quickly. Are you suggesting then that so the engineers are sort of looking at the bridge per se rather than its, um, its relevance in the wider sphere? Yeah, what function does it perform in the network exactly? Brilliant, thank you. Um, so the final question, I, I think this is from Alex online, evening to you. How can we ever know what is really happening in the built environment when so much doesn't even need to touch the planning system, home improvements in aggregate, for example? Hmm. Yeah. I. <laughs> I don't know. I guess there's, there's proxy measures, like mobile network data is a proxy measure, right? I, I think, I think if, if we can start with national critical infrastructure and get that working, we can then think about how to extend the model down to the smaller, more privately held uh, sets of assets. Um, but we haven't even got that top level working yet. So extending that to your backyard and your shed, as much as I enjoy the sentiment, feels a bit premature at this point. Brilliant. Well, that's almost brought us to time. So, Ian, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Uh, a few quick parish notices before I let all of you uh, to the reception on the landing. Uh, we'll aim to have video of this on the IFG website within 24 hours, but you can already watch it back as live on Slido uh, or on YouTube. And I'm sure you don't need me to say bit.ly slash slidodb45 again, but I have anyway. Uh, the IFG's next public event uh, is at 10 a.m. on Monday, and it's uh, somebody called Liz Truss um, doing a keynote speech. So do sign up and tune into that virtual event. Um, we've 
we've also got events coming up. Um, there's a big constitution conference on Tuesday and other events on underinvestment in public service infrastructure, standards in public life, and an in-conversation with the Commissioner of the Met Police. We're also taking an extensive programme to Conservative and Labour Party conferences. So if you are in Manchester or Liverpool, I hope I've got those cities right, I'm supposed to be going as part of those events, um, then do join us. Uh, we have got a couple on AI uh, for those of you who are particularly interested in data. Data Bytes will return on Wednesday, the 18th of October, uh, so do sign up for that. Um, as I mentioned, the Justice Data Report that's based on a couple of our recent events, supported by the Nuffield Foundation, will be published next week, uh, so keep an eye out for that. If you'd like to sponsor uh, a future Data Bytes, please do get in touch. We really do need some sponsors. Uh, and if you'd like to speak, um, please get in touch with me. All that remains for me to say are two very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our wonderful audience, and fantastic questions tonight here in the building and online. So thank you very much for that. And please do join me in a huge round of applause for our four fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you.